Let's pray together. We'll get started. Lord, it's clear from your word that you love us, and we are so grateful for that. And in this season, as we think about the truth of your coming to the earth, of your humbling yourself and taking the form of a servant, um, help us to be reminded of, of your holiness and of your love for us, that you would be willing to um, lay down, to lay aside the, the glory that is yours in eternity um, to come and be with us and to live among us and to experience life like we do and to take the punishment for our sins. Lord, help us to see the gospel for what it is and to be reminded of this, this truth this season. As we look into your word today, Lord, help us to see clearly and help us to respond honestly to it. And um, we pray that you would uh, do the work, continue the work that you have been doing in us um, since the world began. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so I have one main goal today with the sermon, and that's to bring us to a point of wonder. Wonder at the faithfulness of the Lord and, and hope in his plan for the redemption of mankind. That's kind of where I'm going with, uh, with everything today. And so we're going to start in the most logical and the most spiritual place. Um, and that is with a nerdy examination of Pink Floyd's album, The Wall. And uh, so uh, I'm not going to get too deep into the subject matter of The Wall because it, it, it gets really weird. Uh, but basically it's about a guy who... Um, from the day he's born, has had a really tough life. And as he gets older, his way of dealing with that is by walling himself off from other people and from the world around him. And um, eventually he comes to a crisis point and realizes that if he's going to survive, he has to tear down that wall and, you know, be a part of people's lives and let other people be a part of his life. Um, so it's good in the end. Um, but uh, the, the main thing I want to focus on uh, that will be relevant to us today, believe it or not, uh, is the musical aspect of the album. Uh, Pink Floyd makes use of a very old compositional technique called leitmotif. It's a German word. Uh, it, and a leitmotif is a recurring musical idea that embodies some sort of theme or concept. Um, uh, think about this. If my guitar will work for me. Right? Like, you recognize that. Or, uh, right? You hear this, and instantly you associate it with something. Right? That's the idea of a leitmotif. And um, so you don't realize that it's happening when you hear it, usually, until later on in whatever you're listening to, you hear it again, and you're drawn back to whatever the, the subject was the first time, you know? Um, and so that's the idea. And so uh, Pink Floyd uh, establishes this uh, leitmotif in the wall in the very first song. There's four notes. It goes low, middle, high, middle. Here's an example. Low. Right? You just think it's some sort of just 
loud guitar introduction, right? You don't know that it's going to keep coming back throughout the whole thing. Um, and I love that. It's sneaky. It sneaks in there. Like, you don't realize that it's happening, but it's there. Uh, and so then you get to the, uh, later on, uh, this is one of, one of Pink Floyd's most famous songs comes in. Listen to the vocal melody that he sings. It's a different rhythm, but listen. Right? Low, middle, high, middle. Right? And you may not still, even when you're listening to the album, you don't maybe realize how connected this all is. But it's there. Later on in the album, it, it happens all over. I'm not going to play the whole album for you. But later on, this is a different example. They, they, they start on a different note, right? It was going. This one, they're going to do it on a different guitar string. But it's the same idea. And it's kind of like supporting this big, loud guitar solo. And the whole point is to support the story that they're trying to tell, right? It's associated with this internal turmoil that this guy's going through. Uh, so what's my point? Why, why, does, why does Pink Floyd matter when we're talking about Jesus and Advent and stuff? Um, the best way I think that I can sum up my point after I turn off my guitar is uh, with this quote from Sally Lloyd-Jones' Jesus Storybook Bible. It says this, There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. All of Scripture points to Jesus. Sometimes it's only a hint, like, like, like when your kid makes an expression and it looks just like your uncle or your grandmother. But then, then they're just back to them. But every now and then, you, it's almost like a ghost. It's, it's barely there. And sometimes you might be reading the Old Testament and you're reading and you, yeah, it sounds a lot like Jesus. I mean, it doesn't say it's Jesus. It's, you know, it's not, it's a different place, different time, but it, it sounds a lot like Jesus. And then sometimes you're reading and, and you, you read Psalm 22 and it's like, oh, those are the literal words that came out of Jesus' mouth on the cross. And that was, David wrote that, you know. Um, that's the idea. It, it, it may be a hint. It may be obvious. But all of Scripture points to Jesus. The point from the beginning of time uh, is that God has been writing this story. And Jesus has been the beginning and the ending of the story all along. Um, Isaac Watts, who wrote Joy to the World and a bunch of other hymns that we sing, he said that if we will only look, we will behold our Savior's face in every page, every page of Scripture. Last week, Bryce preached about the connections between the Passover and the coming of the ultimate Lamb of God. He told us that both the Passover and the coming of Christ offered his people an identity and a Redeemer. Today, we're going to be talking about David. And in many, many ways, uh, King David was a foreshadowing of King Jesus. From where he was born, to the things he'd accomplished, to the covenant of an everlasting kingdom, David was a foreshadowing of Jesus' first advent and of the one yet to come. Jesus is often referred to as the second Adam, a man born holy who did not succumb to the effects of sin. Uh, And Bryce mentioned last week how Jesus was a second and better Moses who led his people out of captivity. And similarly, I would say that Jesus is kind of a second David. 
the perfect shepherd king who wasn't just a man after God's own heart. He was God's heart beating in human flesh. So as we get into the life of David, let's set the scene for where Israel was in their history. Uh, They wanted a king, Israel did. Um, Up to this point, they had been ruled by judges who kept order and enforced the laws of God. And they were highly esteemed, but it was clear uh, by the way that they ruled the people that there was no king in Israel but the Lord. Um, But by this time, Israel, they were relatively settled in the promised land, and they'd conquered all these kingdoms and peoples around who all had kings. And uh, they wanted one too. They wanted to be like everybody else. Like, we want a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist. You know, like we want to have a king like that. A real king that they could see and hear and rally behind. Uh, So they took their request to the prophet Samuel who was speaking to the people on behalf of God at this point. And God told, uh, told them through Samuel why having a king would be a bad idea. He's going to tax you. He's going to make your children serve in his army. It's not going to be as glorious as you think it is. Um, but they still wanted a king. So God gave them what they wanted, which is a theme of Scripture uh, that we've discussed even in Romans. Sometimes God gives people what they want to prove a point, to bring about repentance or to bring about judgment. He gives them what they want. So God chose a man named Saul to be king. He looked like a king. Uh, He looked like just the king that the people had been begging for. And the people ate it up. They were psyched to finally have a real king, just like everybody else. But Saul turned out to be a disappointment. He did not trust God or follow him closely. He wanted to do everything himself. And so eventually God informed Saul that he would be removing the kingdom from him and giving it to another. So this is where we connect with that stump of Jesse that, that Tony read about in Isaiah. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel um, chapter 16, if you've got your Bible or your Bible app, if you want to open up there and follow along to make sure I'm not lying to you. People lie these days. Uh, so 1 Samuel chapter 16 is where we'll get started this morning. Uh, 1, Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, um, verse 1, it says this, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him for being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among among his sons. I love that he says, fill your horn with oil and go. It's like he's saying, I've already got a plan going, and if you don't hurry up, you're going to miss it. You're going to be behind schedule. So, like, just fill your horn with oil and go. I've already got a king picked out. Um, So Bethlehem was a a smallish town about six miles from Jerusalem. It's where Ruth met and married Boaz. uh, And it was a hilly country where they harvested grain. But besides that, there wasn't much else to say about Bethlehem. It wasn't like a prestigious city. It was just a, a country town. So Samuel went to Bethlehem to make a sacrifice. And he invited Jesse and his family just as the Lord had instructed him. And when they showed up, Samuel saw Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, and thought to himself, and this is in verse 6, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God's beginning to make his point clear. He sent Samuel to an unexceptional town, 
And when Samuel fawns over the king-looking son of Jesse, the Lord says, you're seeing this the wrong way. The first time around, the people wanted somebody who looked like a king. I'm going to show you what a real king is like, and it will not depend on his outward appearance. But that's what we often want, right? I mean, we want our questions obviously answered and sensibly answered. We want things to be logical and specific. Don't be mysterious. We don't want suspense. What it comes down to is we want to be able to figure things out and explain them on our own. We want it to make sense in our brain. We want it to be our work, our decision, our plan. We don't want to trust God and his plan. We don't want to follow the Spirit. We don't want to have faith. God forces us into faith. He calls our bluff. We're all like, we're self-sufficient. We can do everything we want. And God's like, oh yeah? Really? Let's see. And he leads us to a place where we don't have any choice but to trust him, to expose that sin. Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we're saved by grace through faith, right? But that even that faith is a gift from God. It's not our own. What God is making clear to Samuel is that even Samuel, the prophet of God, who is revered as this holy man, even Samuel has to have faith. He must believe and trust God to see the true king in his midst. We saw this last week with the Passover, and we see it over and over again throughout Scripture and throughout history. I don't really know why it is exactly, but God makes his people wait in faith for good things. We must wait on the Lord and believe that he will bring about his good promises. That's what Advent is all about, and really that's what life is all about. We must live our lives anticipating the life of the world to come when Jesus makes all things new. Even though things are vague and difficult and mysterious and sad in any given moment here, we must believe. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. And in this, God's glory is magnified and not our own. That's why God sent Samuel to this little podunk town and confused him with his plan for picking the king. He wasn't going to leave even a crumb that anybody could brag about. It was going to be by faith. So, of course, Jesse brings all of his sons before Samuel, and one by one, and the Lord doesn't pick any of them. So Samuel is still confused, and he looks at Jesse, and he's like, is that all of them? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. He's out in the pasture. You want me to get him? I mean, but it's just, he's the kid. He's, he's the run of the litter, right? They, they didn't do things in that order. The oldest got the privileges and all the important stuff. The youngest, you know. I think it's interesting, though, that the prophet of God is in town, and it's, uh, it's such a big deal that the, lead, the elders of the city are, like, visibly nervous that Samuel is there. They think that something bad is about to happen. Recently, Samuel had uh, hacked to pieces an evil king that, uh, that Saul hadn't taken care of. So <laughs> word had gotten around that Samuel made business, and they were nervous that he was there. This is a big deal. These are things that people should be paying attention to, and the future king is out keeping his sheep. He may not have had a choice in the matter, but I think it's still something to note. He was a good and faithful shepherd who had struck down lions and bears to protect his flock. So he was just doing his job. So Samuel tells Jesse to send for David, and the Lord confirms that this was going to be the new king of Israel. And Samuel anoints him as king. The Lord didn't look on the outside appearance of a little shepherd boy. He looked at his heart, and he saw a king. So time goes on. Uh, David serves under Saul as a musician, basically a music therapist. He 
plays music to kind of get Saul to calm down. Because at this point, Saul is tormented because the Spirit of the Lord has left him. Um, but he's still suffering in his position as king. David ends up being a, a commander of Saul's troops and gets quite a reputation for it and, and starts making a name for himself. People are starting to revere David. So much Saul that, Saul that Saul begins to hate him deeply and tries to have him killed. So uh, David has to, to flee and lives a fugitive until Saul dies in battle uh, sometime later. So after, I don't know how long it was, uh, the Bible doesn't exactly say, but it was, it was harrowing. He had several close calls with Saul, or maybe I should say Saul had several close calls with David, and David could have killed him, and he didn't. But so after he's all this time on the run, uh, Saul dies, and David eventually becomes king of Judah, and then eventually king of all Israel. He brings the ark to Jerusalem and starts dreaming up a plan to build a permanent temple for it there. Uh, and it's at this point that something significant happens, something that's going to have really far-reaching effects. Uh, David was discussing his idea for the temple with, uh, with Nathan, who was Samuel's successor as kind of the prophet to Israel. And, uh, and God responded to David through Nathan and said, listen, you don't need to worry about the temple right now. But he does give him these instructions. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you want to turn over there, uh, this will also be on the screen. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Beginning in verse 12, this is what God says. Now, therefore, you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this is the covenant that God made with David. I'll make your name great. I'll appoint a place for my people. I will plant them there. They will no longer be afflicted. They'll have rest from all their enemies. I will make your family great. And from your offspring will come a kingdom that will know no end. He will build a house for my name. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will discipline him, but I will not leave him. Uh, John Piper says that this passage is like taking an extended telescope of events and collapsing it down so that the near and distant events are viewed together. Clearly, the Lord is talking about David's son Solomon in this passage, right? Scripture tells us that Solomon ascended to the throne after David. He built the temple in Jerusalem, and he surpassed even his father's greatness. He was known as the wisest man to ever live. He was extraordinarily rich and was a glorious king. Uh, and when he committed iniquity, 
like his father, and there was a lot of it, uh, the Lord disciplined him, right? So all those things were true, and they happened to Solomon. But his throne was not established forever. He died just like David did. And eventually, it's the kingdom itself crumbled. But we see here that the Lord isn't just talking about Solomon. He's talking about a greater king to come, a king who won't be undone by sin, a king whose throne will be established forever and whose kingdom will never crumble. He will be the true son whose father is God. And he will be disciplined with the rod of men for sins that he didn't commit. But he will bring about a permanent place and identity for God's people. He will bring an end to the affliction. He will bring a final defeat to the truest enemies of God's people, sin and death and Satan himself. So David was a great king. He defeated Israel's enemies in battle. He brought stability and respect and renown to the the kingdom of Israel, despite his very big and very bad sins. uh, The people loved him. Uh, He reigned for 40 years, as did Solomon after him. And the people of Israel would always look back on, on these as the good old days. They would always long for kings who would reign like David and Solomon. There were kings after that, glorious kings and important kings, but none of them matched David and Solomon. They trusted in God's covenant that he would establish David's throne and securely plant the people of Israel. But after a while, it became obvious that no normal king could actually do it, right? King after king over generations fell into ruin because of his own sin. There were a few good ones like Hezekiah and Josiah, but by and large, they were corrupt and faithless leaders. They did not keep the commands of the Lord And they led the kingdom into spiritual callousness, into idolatry. These kings were incapable of fulfilling the conditions of God's covenant with David. David himself wrote in Psalm 14, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So if the Lord was going to keep his word he would have to raise up a king from David's line who would be righteous and who would rule righteously, a king who would obey the voice of the Lord, a king who was worthy to sit on David's throne and rule forever, the Messiah. But how? How could this covenant be redeemed after years and years and generations after generation of spiritual and political ruin? During the long years of disobedience and war and captivity, The prophets continued to tell of the coming day when the Lord will fulfill his covenant, the covenant he made with David. Listen to what Jeremiah said, uh, Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That echoes the verses that we read earlier uh, in Isaiah chapter 11, where it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. At this point, it appeared like the line of David was just a dead stump in the ground. The plan of God had been cut off. Times were bleak. And this wasn't the first time in Scripture that things seemed hopelessly lost. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, and when the earth had descended into 
to chaos and to evil before the flood. When Sarah was barren, when Joseph was sold into slavery and falsely imprisoned, when the people of Israel were in bondage in Egypt, or when they were facing Pharaoh's army on one side and the Red Sea on the other, when they wandered in the desert for 40 years, to any reasonable human, any of those circumstances would say, God's plan is done. It's over. That can't be fixed. But the will of God is bigger than the best human reason and logic. God is sovereign, and his will is unstoppable. He will accomplish it. So when God said, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, he was reiterating that he would surely fulfill his word. He had not forgotten. He would keep his covenant with David and with his people. But once again, for reasons that we can't always understand, his people were going to have to wait. But God didn't give the prophet Isaiah, God did give the prophet Isaiah a glimpse to his ultimate plan. Isaiah got a lot of glimpses, actually. In order to fulfill all of the conditions of the covenant that he made with David and to accomplish the greater plan of redemption that was still a mystery to most of his people, God himself would take on flesh to sit on that throne and to keep his word. God himself would accomplish what seemed hopeless and impossible. Isaiah chapter 9 says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That king would be King Jesus. God himself would come and sit on the throne and get the job done. So King Jesus. The angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. We've heard this story before in Luke chapter 1. And he said, behold, he didn't just say, you're going to have a baby. He's going to be the Messiah. It's going to be great. He specifically reiterates God's promises that God has not forgotten and that God has not uh, stopped filling his people's ears with. He says, verse 31 of Luke chapter 1, it says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. We don't have time to get into every prophecy that Jesus fulfilled, but we know that Isaiah prophesied that a virgin would conceive and give birth to Emmanuel, God with us. And after 700 years of waiting, Mary was that virgin. Both she and her betrothed husband, Joseph, were, of the, were descendants of David. And Gabriel told her that the child would be called the Son of the Most High. Not just the Son of David, which was like, if you read that in Scripture, that's a, a recurring term for the coming Messiah, Son of David. But he's not just going to be son of David. He's the son of God himself sent to sit on David's throne. What man could not do, God was doing. The son of the most high. God was doing it and no one could stop him. Coincidentally, Caesar Augustus, who at this point is the most powerful person in the world, he decides he's going to have a census. Can't all the people in his empire. Completely his idea. He's the most powerful man in the world. He names months after himself. He does what he wants to do, right? Well, he decides to, to have a census, 
And so everyone under his rule would have to pack up and head back to their ancestral hometown to be counted in the census. And so where was Joseph's ancestral home? It was Bethlehem because he was of the line of David. And the prophet Micah foretold that the Messiah would come from that same insignificant little town where David had kept his sheep. It was pretty common knowledge, too, when the, uh, when the Magi showed up from the east later, you know, later on, they go to Herod, and they're like, hey, where's this new king? We heard there's a new king. And Herod, very nervously and angrily, goes to the scribes, and is like, where does it say that thing about the Messiah? Where's he going to come from? And the scribes are like, oh, Bethlehem. Yeah, it says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Like, it's, the people of God knew that. So Joseph and Mary made it to Bethlehem just in time for Mary to find a place to give birth. And then they gazed upon the maker of the universe, the king of kings, who was sovereignly keeping his word, even as he laid in a manger in the form of a helpless baby. In Luke chapter 2, it says that in that same reason, region, there were some shepherds keeping watch over their flock that night, the same region where David kept watched over his father's flock all those years before, when Samuel came to anoint him as king. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them with the bright glory of God shining and uh, brought them good news of great joy. And he said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And the, this passage reminds me of when, uh, when God told Samuel, Fill up your horn with oil and go. He appears to these shepherds and he's like, Listen, he's already there. Go look. He's there. I'm telling you. Go. And so they, the Bible says that they get up quickly and they run into town to go find this thing that has happened. So when the multitude of the heavenly host breaks out into this grand chorus of glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, we see this magnificent release of joy. And it's not just a pretty little improvised song of praise. It's not just a moment. God the poet had been composing this epic poem for millennia, setting up rhymes and foreshadowing what was to come so that when these angels sang out to the Lord in the presence of these shepherds, it was a climactic point of the work. It was as if all creation had been designed and sustained to bring about this moment, because it had. And praise God, the poem wasn't over yet. There were lines still left to rhyme. Jesus' whole life was the culmination of God's interaction with his people since the garden. His birth in David's town of Bethlehem. His presentation at the temple in Jerusalem on the eighth day. The temple that David had dreamed up. The temple where Jesus himself would later teach and cause quite a ruckus. His family's flight to Egypt in order to survive. His obedience to the law that had been given to the people of Israel. His ministry. His unconditional love. His triumphal ride into Jerusalem on a donkey the week before he was killed. His arrest and his death on the cross. This was the will of God being accomplished just as he said it would. And more beautifully than anybody could have expected. And at precisely the, the time that the Lord intended, not man. So now we live our lives in this kind of in-between, right? Once again, we are waiting for our promised Messiah but this time we wait for his return. And that's a hard thing. Jesus' Jesus's life on earth was a really long time ago. Like, a really long time ago. It often seems as if 
God has finished working like he did in those days. Sometimes it's easy to wonder, has God forgotten? Or worse, does he not really care about finishing the job? Does God still love his people? I mean, look at the world around us. Things do not make sense. Loved ones die for what seems like no good reason. Relationships with those we love are irreparably fractured. Senseless evil seems to roam about looking for a place to attack innocent people. World leaders are corrupt and are bolstered by people who are either deceived or don't care about the corruption. Families flee their homeland because of war and famine. Evil people prosper. And most of our questions have not been answered. In 1863, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Does this sound familiar? Have we seen this in Scripture before? Yes, we have. We are not the first generation of God's people to live in an age that seems hopeless. We might live in the age of the internet, but the problems of the world are the same as they ever were. The problems in our hearts are the same that they ever were. And the exercising of faith is still just as difficult as it ever has been for God's people. But that's still what God expects of us. So what are we to do with all of this? This waiting. Look back. We are nearing the end of the sprawling double album that the Lord has composed. Look back through scripture and history and your own life and see what the Lord has done. Can you see the recurring themes of his love and faithfulness? Can you see that he has never changed? Then we must trust that he is still the same in this moment and that he will be the same forevermore and that a promise made is a promise kept and that when Jesus returns, he will finally and completely fulfill that promise to David. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Then pealed, the loud, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. So what are we to take away from all of this? Uh, the first thing, I think, is to study the scriptures. See for yourself the story that God has written. In order to see scripture pointing to Jesus, we have to take in scripture, and we have to take in the whole of scripture. The more that we study scripture, the more vivid God's character and promises become. The more we see the connections, the real-life leitmotifs. God is our creator, and he is creative. This plan, this story, is a work of art. And I don't just mean the Bible itself. I mean all of creation and all of history. It's a work of beauty meant to point us to Jesus. Works of art demand, demand your time and your attention to fully experience them. And if that is true of books and movies and songs and paintings, then how much more true of it is, God, is it of God's inspired word? It demands our time and attention to fully take it in. Two, God keeps his promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 
God has a proven track record of keeping his word, and his people have a proven track record of doubting it. We may not have many people in our lives that we can truly trust, but we can trust God. I know that there are those among us who don't have a father that is trustworthy. So the image of God as a father is a tough one to take in. But God is our father, and he is a good one. He possesses all the good that earthly parents can lack. He loves his people, and he keeps his word. He will keep his promises. Three, keep faith in the coming king. When we look back at God's faithfulness, it's so that we can look forward, trusting in that faithfulness, wondering at that faithfulness. Even though we can't feel it or understand it, we can trust it. God makes his people wait for good things, and as Tom Petty told us, the waiting is the hardest part. Unbearably hard at times. But, the process, but in the process of writing the story and making us wait and making us look deeply into his word, God demonstrates his glory and his goodness, and he woos us with his beauty. He causes us to love him and trust him more. So keep faith in the coming of our king and live each moment in light of his coming. Live each moment of your life as if it is true, because it is. Uh, I'll close by reading a passage that I've ended a sermon with before, but I find a lot of comfort in it, and I think it's particularly relevant to our celebration of Advent. This is what we are waiting for. This is what we are looking forward to. And this has been the ending of the story all along. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 6, says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that we can trust you. And it doesn't make sense, and it is not easy, but you have proven yourself to be trustworthy. Help us, Lord, to trust you and to believe that you will bring your promises to pass. Lord, as we take communion, help us to reflect on your coming and on your sacrifice and on your love for us. And as we celebrate Advent, and as we go through the rest of this holiday season, Lord, may we not lose sight of you and not lose sight of your promises. We love you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.